as Nick has already said, is we want to meditate on the crucifixion. We want to go together to the cross of Christ and we want to see Him there. As painful as it may be, we want to see Him suffering. We want to understand His death. We want to think deeply about all that He experienced as He poured Himself out for us. And as we we come to this hour, which Jesus frequently referred to this time as the hour for which He came, as we come to this hour, it is more than an hour. It started actually a long time ago, and as uh, Nick even spoke last night, he brought us in the narrative all the way up to the garden. Really, his hour had begun there. Where on that night, as he went to the garden to pray, he was abandoned by his friends. He was taken into custody. He was threatened like a criminal. Soldiers mocked him spit on him, struck him. Then he was kept awake through the night, forced to answer questions that were dripping with accusation and hatred. And he was handed over to the Romans. And as he was brought out, his own people cried out, crucify him. He was given 39 lashes and forced to carry his own cross outside the city where he was stripped naked, nailed to a cross, and then hoisted up in the air for all to see. And as he was there, people shouted at him, laughed at him, He saved others. Let's see Him save Himself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. It says they wagged their heads at Him. While He hung there on the cross in agony, His beloved disciple John was was there watching. As we heard in the passage that they just Read and, and along with John and these other gospel writers, we have recorded seven things that he said while he was on the cross. As you can imagine, much attention has been paid to these seven utterances of Christ. Why these seven things? Why are they recorded? Why did he make the effort between gasps for air to say these things? For the last several years on these Good Friday services, we have been taking the time to meditate on each of these phrases. And today, we will meditate on the saying, I thirst. We find it in John 19. We just heard it, and I want to read it together again. Just verses 28 and 29. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, I want to observe several things 
this afternoon about these verses. First, Jesus knew that all was now fulfilled. Or at least all but this one thing. That's what is implied here. He knew exactly where he was on the course. It gives us this impression that Jesus has this otherworldly view of the situation. And it raises the question, how did he know that? How did he know exactly what needed to be fulfilled? How did he know this one last thing was needed? He knew because he was God in the flesh. I think we tend to forget either that Jesus was God or that Jesus was a man, but this passage clearly reminds us of both. He knew exactly what was going on. Even though he had lost massive amounts of blood, had been awake all night, was was dehydrated, was in great pain, could barely breathe, he still had this supernatural capacity. How could that be? It's because he was God. He was and is a member of the divine trinity and he never once ceased to be God. So here, our God, creator of the universe, sustainer of the heavens, hung on a cross. He was cursed on a tree, bruised for our transgressions. What kind of God is this? What kind of Creator humbles Himself and suffers at the hands of His creation for His creation? Even though I've heard this so many times, I can't wrap my mind around that idea. It's not the kind of God that I would think of. In fact, it defies everything I think about when I think about a divine being. Everyone should serve Him. Everything should be about Him. And yet here He is, having humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then it says that He spoke in order to fulfill the Scripture. He says, I thirst. But before we try to understand what He is saying there, we have to ask, what Scripture is being fulfilled? Some say that it is Psalm 69, which reads, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep in mire, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. You skip down to verse 19 and he says, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They have given me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. 
or some think that it's Psalm 22, which Jesus has already quoted part of that psalm as he has been on the cross. Where he says, I'm poured out like water, my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. He says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Whether it be Psalm 69 or Psalm 22 or both, Jesus is fulfilling the Scriptures. He knows exactly what needs to be done. And so He calls out, I thirst. What does it mean that Jesus would say, I thirst? There's a lot written about these two words because of the place that they Occupy when, when, when Christ would only utter seven phrases on the cross, you can imagine the attention that they get. And as you think about these two words, the shortest of all these sayings, the most obvious answer is that he was thirsty. And of course, we know that from, from the verse that on some level he's thinking about fulfilling the scriptures, but that doesn't change the fact that he was thirsty. So here is, I think, the million-dollar question. It's, it's what I want to linger on the longest as we meditate together. It is the question that has captivated me as I've thought about this phrase. What does it reveal about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that He would put Himself in a position where he has to call out to creatures that he created, I thirst. Remember, Jesus is God. He is the King of the universe, the sovereign creator. It was through him, the eternal word, that God brought all things into being includes every drop of water on the planet. All the brooks and streams of the earth, waves and tides, obey His command. And yet He humbled Himself to the point that He had to cry out, I'm thirsty. He put himself at the mercy of these men who responded to their Creator by offering him sour wine. I have thought a lot about what they would have offered him if they would have known who he really was. <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> notes about this same phrase, I thirst, that thirst is a commonplace misery. Such as may happen to peasants and beggars, it is a real pain and not a thing of a fancy or a nightmare of dreamland. Thirst is no royal grief, but an evil of universal manhood. Jesus is brother to the poorest and most humble of our race. This is what makes Jesus the great high priest that the book of Hebrews describes him as in Hebrews chapter 4. 
It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you in need? Go to Him. Not only is God a refuge in times of trouble, a strong tower to run to, but Christ is our merciful and sympathetic High Priest. He knows what it is like to be thirsty. He knows what it is like to be poor. He knows what it is like to be rejected, abandoned by his closest friends, put in prison, beaten, spit upon, suffer humiliation and shame. He has been tempted in every way. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thinking about his suffering, his thirst, his humiliation, not only presents him as a great high priest, but also as a great example. That Nick spoke last night of this love, this new commandment that he called us to love as he had loved us. To imitate this love. And here is a graphic picture of the extent of his love. Here he hangs on the cross, bleeding, gasping for air, thirsty for a drink. Paul applies this scene to our lives. In Philippians chapter 2, a very familiar passage, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have this mind among yourselves. If Christ, the one who made the seas, would deny Himself water, then how much more should we lay down our rights for those around us? If Christ, the Creator, of all human beings, would humble Himself to die for those He brought into existence, how much more should we lay down our lives for those around us? And let us dare not think highly of ourselves when we do. 
We dare not look for praise or a pat on the back because whatever sacrifice we make for others, it pales in comparison to the sacrifice that he has made for us. Paul then rightly goes on to say, therefore at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And we would miss an opportunity this afternoon if we didn't stop even now to worship Him. In your hearts and minds, even in this moment, bow your knee to Him. Worship at His feet. Let your mind be caught up into the immeasurable kindness and mercy that's on display and worship Him. Worship Him. In verse 29, it says that a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. Jesus is an example, but he is far more than that. There is a picture that John is painting here where you have a sponge on the end of a hyssop branch that is dripping red wine. And I am almost positive that it's a reminder to us, to all those that would have been watching on that afternoon, that God's Passover lamb is here. Is he not pointing back to the blood that was shed by that sacrificial lamb in Egypt that saved the lives of so many Hebrew people? And saying, here is the sacrificial lamb of God. Here now blood is being spilt that will save far more lives than the blood of those lambs. Here, God is making the one great sacrifice which all other sacrifices were pointing to. I think that's exactly what John is saying. In the first chapter of John, what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now with a great exclamation point, he says again, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On this Good Friday, as we go into Easter weekend, let's behold Him. Linger over this narrative. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold Him on the cross as He suffered and died and poured Himself out even to death. And worship Him. Bow your knee to Him. Let's pray.